All right, well, before we get started, I want to make sure I'm still kind of stuffy and my head can't hear real good. Uh, I'd ask Robert, can you, do I sound, can you hear me? Am I loud enough? It needs to go up. Can we get it to go up a little bit, Chris? All right, terrific. We're going to look now at God's Word from the book of Colossians. And we, we've been here for a little bit of time now. We, we stopped in chapter 3 where Paul is giving uh, rules for how to obey as Christians within households, okay? And so we're pick, picking up where we left off. We're going to be starting in verse 22. Now hear the word of the one true and living God. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Sometimes we come to uncomfortable places in Scripture that challenge our ideas and feelings about things. Scripture often comes into conflict with us and our sensibilities, but it never conflicts with itself. God's Word interrogates us. It exposes our sin and, frankly, shows us we're wrong a lot. And wherever we find ourselves out of step with it, we're the ones out of bounds, and we are to conform ourselves to it. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do that because he's given us new eyes and a new heart that can understand God's word and love his law. So does God's word condone slavery? Isn't that the tension you feel in this passage? Isn't this one of those places that people point to in the Bible and say, see, how can you believe that? If your religion supports slavery and, 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 and racism, then your religion is no good and your God is not a good God. That's the extreme example, of course, right? Some people, some people, many who profess to be Christians will simply apologize for passages like this and say, yeah, well, that was, you know, that was a different time, and yes, there's parts of the Bible that, that just are outdated and don't apply anymore. But listen, anything that is better today than it was yesterday is a result of Christ ruling and reigning over heaven and earth and not because the times they are changing. God never changes. The reason slavery has been abolished in the world is because Christ is redeeming it, not because we wised up. I'll touch on that some more later, and I'll just say too, somebody is going to hear this this morning or listen to the audio later this week and say, he sounds like he's supporting slavery. And I'm going to say, you didn't listen. You chose to just ignore everything that we've talked about this morning. Nothing could be farther from the truth. We are going to take a very careful look at this passage and we're going to talk about these instructions that Paul, Paul gives to slaves and to masters and we're going to let God speak for himself on the issue of slavery and not import our own standards and morals onto the text. Because guess what? We're not moral. 
God is the standard of morality, amen? And he's much more concerned with the morality of people than we are. Because we're made in his own image. That matters. People, no matter their their social status or their geographic location or the color of their skin or otherwise, matter to God because they bear his image. He put it there. My hope is by the end of the sermon, you'll see what this passage is saying, what it's not saying, and that if you're ever challenged on the credibility of the Bible over things like this, you will know how to think biblically about it and not be tempted to just explain it all away or apologize for God seemingly being out of step with current times. Here's the main idea of the message this morning. Some forms of slavery are better than others. I realize that is jarringly provocative. I don't intend for it to be offensive, but I do want it to get you thinking because what, what, what's the first thing you think of? Where does your mind go when you hear the word slavery? Let's just be honest. 18th century American chattel slavery, right? That's the only category we seem to have for that because we are all people of a particular time and, and place in the world, right? And, and we don't have much reference outside of that. Now, now I realize some of you might have been, you know, history majors or something in college, and so you have some of a, of a wider perspective on that. But the truth is, as Americans living in the 21st century, the conversations that we, that we tend to hear about slavery are almost always certainly about the enslavement of black people in America. But is there something broader than that? I mean, we can recognize, of course, that's where our minds immediately go, but is there something that exists outside of that? And the answer is yes. There have been other forms of slavery. Slavery has existed in other parts of the world in other periods of time and include lots of different kinds of people. And yes, some forms of slavery were better than others. So here are my two points for you this morning. Slavery in the Bible is different than slavery in America. Slavery to Christ is different than slavery to sin. But since we're talking in better and worse categories, I'm going to sweeten the deal for you. Slavery in the Bible, as we see described here, is better than slavery in America was. And slavery to Christ is better than slavery to sin. Any disagreements so far? All right, let's get into it. Paul's just finished addressing wives and husbands and children in his letter to the Colossians. He's given instructions to Christian households. He's telling Christians, no matter your station in life, you are to conduct yourself as someone blood-bought by our Lord Jesus. And slaves were a part of these households. So, uncomfortable question you're going to need to know how to deal with. Was it a sin for these Christians to have slaves? No. It, it wasn't. Now, why is that hard for us to say? Because where does your mind scurry back off to right away? Slavery in America, right? One of the things that people will say 
is that, well, you know, Christians used to use the Bible to justify slavery in America. And they're right. They did. There were lots of people who professed to be Christians who did that very thing. And it was an abuse of God's word. But slavery in the Bible is different. And in fact, the arrangement between slaves and masters in this passage is undeniably better than slavery in America was. We have to be able to distinguish between the two. Slavery in America was based on racism. I mean, duh, right? We all realize that, don't we? It, 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 was, it was justified because black people weren't viewed as people. They were viewed as, as livestock with thumbs and higher-functioning brains. That is pure evil and deserves eternal punishment in hell. There is no question about that. Anybody who can look at another image bearer of the living God and look down on them and feel superior to them because of the color of their skin that they're wearing has a wickedness so deep inside them it can only be blotted out by the blood of Christ. And, you know, older generations have, have been given kind of a pass for this. You know, they were a product of their time. They just grew up that way. That's a sorry excuse. Christians are always held to a higher standard. Always. There's no excuse for the bitterness and hatred that fuel racism in a new creation of Christ. None whatsoever. And if that's something you struggle with as a believer, something that was in your past that needs to get left all the way in the past, you need to repent and you need to ask God for forgiveness. But... Is that the kind of slavery that we have going on in these households that Paul is addressing? Is it? And absolutely not. It's, it's just not. We don't have an entire race of people enslaved by another race of people. In most cases, in fact, we have neighbors and citizens who are in indentured service to their fellow neighbors and citizens. In Rome during this time, about a third of all people were slaves. Joseph. If I owed you a debt, well, let's say I owed Carol the debt, and I couldn't pay it. I was in hot water, okay? And you were in a position to pay it for me. I could come into your house and work for your family until that debt was paid off. Is that better than me getting thrown in prison? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And... and in fact, some people might say that was the more merciful thing for you to do, and, and that our arrangement was mutually beneficial, wouldn't they? And in fact, it's better for Carol because he actually gets paid instead of society paying for me to get three hots and a cot in prison for the rest of my life while doing nothing to benefit society. So that kind of thing happened a lot in Rome during this time. Now, there were other arrangements, right? There were slaves who were prisoners of war. There were uh, convicts and things like that. And even in those cases, it was more merciful for them to be kept alive and to be able to have food and clothing and contribute something to society rather than rot in prison. So slavery was a thing. Was it a good thing or a bad thing? Paul doesn't say he doesn't make a social comment on slavery. He doesn't condemn it or condone it. But it's a thing. In a fallen world where sin exists and where things are not as they're supposed to be, slavery exists. 
And as long as it does, there's a particular way in which Christian masters and slaves are to conduct themselves and treat one another. They have been set apart to stand out from the way the world does things. Paul is less concerned with the existence of slavery at this time than he is with the the hearts of Christians, whether they are masters or slaves. The longest list of instructions that Paul gives to households in this passage isn't to wives, it isn't to husbands, it isn't to children, it's to slaves. Because he knows in a fallen world where sin exists and slavery exists that labor without love exists. Genesis 3 should be echoing in your ears again. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it will produce for you. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your bread. Labor without love exists in a fallen world. Paul recognizes that. He says there in verse 22, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Obey in everything. You think Paul's instructing them to obey sinful orders? Of course not, right? I mean, we know elsewhere Paul says it's better to obey God than man. So this is another one of those areas where we have to, we have to actually think biblically about this because people will look at this and say, oh, great, okay, so great. So someone who's being sex trafficked should obey their master because that's the Christian thing to do? I mean, you know, maybe you don't talk with people as antagonistic as that. <laughs> I have, I, I have. Um, and the answer's simple, y'all. Absolutely not. Adultery is sin. God never commands people to disobey him. I mean, this is pretty basic stuff, right? If your master tells you to murder someone or to defraud someone else, don't do it. Why? Because it violates God's commandments. Plain and simple. But insofar as you are in your master's service and he requests something of you that is not immoral or a violation of God's law, a task of some sort, do it. And don't do it begrudgingly. He says they're not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. If I ask one of, one of my sons to feed the dog, and I do, that's Judah's job, and he, and, he, and he does it, but he drags his legs behind him with his arms slung at his sides and his eyes rolled back in his head, right? Is that the kind of obedience I'm looking for? Is, is that the kind of obedience that God is looking for? No. It, if you're at work, wherever you work, an office or whatever else, and the only time that you're productive is when you know your boss is actually looking, is that the kind of obedience God expects? No. It's, it's, it's doing it begrudgingly. It's doing it when you're seen. It's, it's eye service. It's, it's, it's fearing man. And God doesn't want you to fear any man. He wants you to fear him. So God's word of caution here to slaves is even when your master isn't looking, I am. And it should always be enough for you. And he, he encourages them there too. Look at verse 23. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance 
as your reward. Now, y'all, you've got to realize, okay, this would have blown their minds. All right, this, this letter of Paul's would, would have been read aloud to the people that were a part of this small little church in Colossae, okay? And the slaves just got elevated. They just got promoted. Their ears just perked up. Why? Because slaves didn't get inheritances. Master's children did. And Paul is reminding them that because you are Christians, you are children of the living God. They will receive an inheritance from their heavenly master that can never be taken away. He's encouraging them, look, you may not like what you have to do, but do it well knowing that you're not working for nothing. Your labor is not in vain. And you can find joy in your labor now knowing that it is God you serve and not man. He says at the end of verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. That's what they needed to be reminded of. They're not ultimately working for the pleasure of their earthly masters. They're working for the pleasure of their master in heaven. That's whose opinion counts. That's who is watching. Paul makes a transitional statement there in verse 25 that applies, excuse me, both ways, back to the slaves that he's finished addressing and forward to the masters he's about to address. Okay, he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, some commentators will argue that this, this only applies to the slaves that he's finished addressing, and, and then he kind of cuts it clean and then moves on to the masters, but no, I'm not buying it. Paul when you read his letters, you realize he is so clever in his writing. He is forceful with the pen. And in fact, you could argue that he was a better writer than he was a speaker. And we get that idea from his letters to the Corinthians where they say, you know, oh, well, he's tough stuff in his writing, but then he shows up here speaking and he's really unimpressive, right? Look at this clever thing that he does here. Paul has just finished talking to slaves, and he closes it with something he knows the masters are very inclined to agree with, right? It, it seems to favor them. He's going to get an amen out of the masters at this point. But then look at the next thing that he says. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, so all that stuff he's just finished saying, right, about the wrongdoer being paid back for the evil he has done and how there's no partiality, that applies to them too. No partiality. He tells masters, you have responsibilities and expectations on you. You are not your own master. You have a master too. You are a slave to Christ and you are to obey him. That's a good spot to segue into my next point. Slavery to Christ is better than slavery to sin. But let's check in right quick. Can we even compare the slavery we're reading about with the slavery we tend to think about from America? I mean, aren't we talking about entirely different things? Is the, is the arrangement that Paul is describing, is the relationship between master and slave different than what slaves suffered in America? Is it not a better situation? Here's what I'm interested. I'm always interested in your witness to unbelievers. If someone accuses you for believing the Bible and saying it supports racism and slavery, will you be able to get into the weeds with them and, and help them think through this? 
Will, will you be able to show them the love of Christ even in a passage as seemingly controversial as this one? Where in this passage do we get even a hint of a notion that kidnapping black people, putting them on ships and shipping them overseas in chains, and then putting them on auction blocks to be sold and beat and whipped and even killed by cruel masters is okay with God. Did I miss it? It's not there. And here's what's more. God is not silent on that kind of treatment of his image bearers. He calls it man-stealing in Exodus 21.16. And he says that anybody who engages in that activity ought to be put to death. According to God's law, murder, rape, man-stealing is a capital offense. It cannot be made right. There is no restitution that can be made for those crimes because justice and God's law is concentrated on the victim and not on the violator. It's about making the victim whole. And in cases of murder, rape, man-stealing, it's impossible to do that. It, it cannot be corrected, and the violator is to be put to death. That's what God says about what people tend to immediately think of when they think about slavery. But that's not the only kind of slavery that's ever existed in the history of the world. It's just not. And here's something I want to challenge you with. This is where it gets sticky, okay? You have to be able to make room for this in your thinking. Was this arrangement Paul has described possible in America in the 1700s. We know there were people who said they were Christians who used the Bible to justify, justify the wicked and cruel treatment of other human beings during that time. And we know according to the Bible, they were dead wrong. But is it possible there might have been at least a few slave-owning Christians who followed Paul's instructions here? Was that sinful? Would it have been sinful for me if I lived during that time to have purchased a slave from my cruel neighbor who I knew had a reputation for beating, raping, and killing his slaves, for me to have compassion on them and bring them out of that situation into my home so that I could care for them the way that Paul says to here? There's got to be a category for that. No thinking person would lump me into the same category as my cruel neighbor. I was not engaged in his cruelty. You follow me? We're getting there, okay? If you're scratching your head, good. We're listening. Some people, one of the reasons I mention this, will discredit the entire ministries of pastors and theologians during that time who did have slaves just canceled by the culture. Nothing they ever said or taught or the songs they wrote or anything else can be endured any longer for that reason. 
But what God seems most concerned with in a time where slavery did still exist in a world that was broken and gone bad and things were not the way that they were supposed to be, what he seems most concerned with is what kind of masters were they while the institution still existed in a fallen world. We know for a fact there were some Christians who openly condemned the slave trade on the grounds that all men were made equal in the eyes of God and yet had slaves. What, what, what do we do with that? They were all monsters. As deplorable as, 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 as the most wicked one. Here it is, okay? The issue is not whether we think slavery as an institution was a good thing. It absolutely was not. No one is arguing whether the slave trade was wicked. It absolutely was. And we're certainly not going to discuss whether or not there were masters who mistreated their slaves. They absolutely did. The question is whether it's possible there were men during that time that were submitted to God's words, recognizing Paul's words here. But here's one more objection, and it's a good one. And I know it's on the tip of your tongue, and I'm right there with you, and it's this. We don't like the idea of any person owning another person at all. It doesn't matter how they treat them. Right? Paul would agree with you. <laughs> Absolutely right. I mean, that just all makes sense to us, right? Paul recognizes, though, you know, he doesn't tell the slaves to revolt. You notice that? He, he would have been grieved in his spirit that this institution existed. That it, was, that, that it was a product of living in a broken world full of sin, okay? But he doesn't tell the slaves to revolt, to escape, to run away. He recognizes that at least for now, this exists. And as long as it does, this is how Christians ought to behave. But, 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 Paul understood what Christ was doing in the world through the power of the gospel. He believed in the transformative effect it would have in the world. By peaceful means and through the conduct of individuals purchased by the blood of Christ, he knew the institution of slavery had no chance of survival. In other words, if Jesus is who he says he is and he is doing what he says he's going to do, this slavery thing, it wouldn't last. And it didn't. But however long it did, Ill will, dishonesty, and laziness on the part of the slave was to be replaced with willing service and integrity. And the cruelty and brutality of the master should be replaced with respect and loving care over those whom God had given into their charge. The expectation Paul has is that the light of the world, Jesus, coming into the world to cast out darkness would actually have an effect on the world. A new and gloriously transformed society would replace the old as the gospel spread throughout the world. And it has. The gospel tearing down the distinctions that sinful men make among us is what set the stage for the abolishment of slavery as an institution. Slavery used to be the way of the world. It's not anymore. If you think the world's getting worse and not better, you're not paying attention. Christ 
sitting on his throne today has consequences for tomorrow, even if you don't live to see that tomorrow. He's ruling and reigning and put all, all of his enemies under his feet. He's destroying every rule and a power and authority that opposes him. Praise his holy name. He's, he's busy redeeming the world that we have broken. And we can rest assured he will not stop until it's done. Next point. Slavery to Christ is better than slavery to sin. We had to work really hard on that last one to get here. Because when you hear slavery, if what you still think of are the horrors of American chattel slavery, you're going to miss this and you can't afford to. You can't afford to miss it. It's the difference between being stolen by sin and being purchased with blood. It's the difference between forfeiting your humanity and it being restored to you. It's the difference between being an enemy and being an heir. We are all, by birth, slaves to sin and death. We are, by faith in our Lord Jesus, our master's children. You are a slave to whatever you obey. You are a slave to what you obey. If you obey your sinful desires, sin is your master, and it will ruin you. If you obey Jesus, he is your master, and he will renew you. Is slavery to Christ better than slavery to sin? You bet it is. And because it is, we can look back at these verses and see with new eyes what Paul intends for them to see and for us to see. You look at verse 22 again where he talks about obeying with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That sincerity of heart means a singleness, an undivided heart. With a heart that recognizes that you have only one master. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says the light of the body is the eye, and if the, light, light, and if the eye be single, same word here, okay, the whole body will be full of light. The single eye is focused and concentrated on one direction and concerned with consistently pursuing that one direction. That sort of unvarying, unwavering concentration of the will produces a consistent Christian conduct in the life of the believer. God uses that, y'all. It glorifies him, and he uses it. Don't miss this. He uses it to bless those around us, to effectuate the kind of change he wants to see. In his world, we messed up. This is how it happens. Hasn't Paul uh, just gone on saying in this whole letter, so far that, 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 we were, that we were once dead in sin, now we're dead to sin, that we're alive in Christ. This is what it looks like. And it has an effect on the world. There are applications to be made here, y'all, you know, about employer-employer relationships and that kind of thing, but it's just so surface level. I mean, yes, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord. Do your work well. Yes, if you are uh, an employer of other people, don't, don't lord yourself over them right? Treat them justly. Treat them fairly. But here's the bigger picture. There is no equality to be gained among men apart from being one in Christ. And in him there is no partiality. He doesn't favor master or slave. 
There's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, right? Nor male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Sounds like equality, right? Sounds like freedom, doesn't it? It is. It sounds like a world gone bad and broken by sin being redeemed and wrongs being set right. That's slavery to Christ. It's different. No, it's, it's better than slavery to sin. Which is your only other alternative? You, you can obey your impulses and your lusts and be dragged around by your whims and your emotions, or you can be free of all that and possess a will that isn't pushed around and bullied by the world, but that takes every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's, that's a process. That's hard to do. Many of us have been Christians for many, many years, struggle with that all the time. But it's that singleness of eye, y'all. It's that keeping your eye on the prize that reels us back in. And the place that it reels us back into, recognizing that we have but one master in heaven and that we are slaves of Christ, the place it reels back, uh, us back into is not a prison yard, okay? It's a playground. <laughs> there, there's, there's freedom and enjoyment and safety and refreshment where there is obedience to Christ. That's the kingdom of God that the Old Testament promised would come and that Jesus brought. It was sealed in his blood. It was proven at his resurrection. And it continues to be carried out since his ascension to the right hand of the Father. As sinful human beings, our desire is to not be mastered by anyone. We don't, we don't want to be mastered by anyone. We want to be our own master. Right? But you are not made in your own image. You're made in God's image. And the truth is, you'll be held accountable for everything you do or say or think in this life. And you're accountable to Him. And there is no escape from condemnation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And pride. Pride is what keeps you from bending the knee from bowing your heart and acknowledging him as Lord and, dirty word, master over your life. That's the most devastating thing about being a slave to sin. Your will is bound and you can't even want the way out. Sin's grip on man is so tight that he's not only able to call evil good and good evil, he's actually tempted to believe and confuse freedom in Christ with slavery. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and come to your senses. That's true for the unbeliever and for the believer. For the unbeliever, for the first time, come to your senses for the first time, right? For the believer, for the 897th time, but come to your senses. That's where freedom is found. It's in bondage to Christ. Freedom is found in bondage to Christ, being bound to him by faith, submitting to him and allowing him to sort you out and to make you into whatever it is he intends for you to be. 
And it's no use arguing over what you wanted to be. Instead, once you see what he intends to make of you, you will want it more. Pray for that singleness of mind that what you do and say and think would be pleasing to your master in heaven, whose child you are, whose inheritance will be shared with you. Despite whatever it may cost you in this life, you will be rewarded in the next. And by way of closing, don't let people who hate Jesus tell you what the Bible says. Don't let them blaspheme your God by accusing him of sins that he sent his only son to die for. They don't know what they're talking about. Will you love them enough to know what you are talking about? Your Bible doesn't need revision. It needs reading and understanding. Read and understand your Bible so that you can show the love of Christ who is redeeming a fallen world from every page, from cover to cover, for his glory and for the good of mankind. Let's pray. Lord our God, as we have said, you're mighty, powerful, wise, merciful. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can trust it. Lord, it was, it was Satan himself who tempted man to ask, did God actually say? Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word by the power of your spirit, that there were chosen men inspired by your Holy Spirit who were able to tell us, to reveal your will for us in your word. God, we know it's true, and we pray that you would you would enlighten us, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds so that we could understand it. Lord, not just for ourselves, but so that we can share the good news of your gospel with others. That they would be able to see the state that they're in and that the world is in. But that they would hope in the Lord Jesus who has and continues to redeem sinners from the pit and to change the world. God, I ask that you would do this for all of us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.